morning, everybody. Scripture today is from Matthew. It's on page 6 of your bulletin. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de Mateo 5:21 al 26. Ustedes han oído que se les dijo a los antiguos, no matarás, y que cualquiera que mate será culpable de juicio, pero yo les digo que cualquiera que se enoje con su hermano será culpable de juicio, y cualquiera que a su hermano le diga necio será culpable ante el concilio, y cualquiera que le diga fatuo quedará expuesto al infierno de fuego. Por tanto, Si traes tu ofrenda al altar y allí te acuerdas de que tu hermano tiene algo contra ti, déjala, deja allí tu ofrenda delante del altar y ve y reconcíliate primero con tu hermano. Y después de eso, vuelve y presenta tu ofrenda. Ponte de acuerdo pronto con tu adversario mientras estás con él en el camino. No sea que el adversario te entregue al juez y el juez al alguacil y seas echado a la cárcel. De cierto te digo que no saldrás de allí hasta que hayas pagado el último centavo. All right, let's pray together. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would come as you promised you would be here. We pray that you would be present in your word, that you would make it come alive to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would remove every resistance that we naturally have against hearing the truth. We pray that the grace of Jesus would be the balm and the comfort that we need to dare to actually let ourselves be exposed to the word of truth. So speak to us. We don't want to waste our time. Speak to us now. We look forward to just exactly how you are going to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend, my family and I had a chance to briefly visit the Renwick Gallery of the Smithsonian Institute, a wonderful design and art gallery that's one of the best-kept secrets, I believe, in Washington, D.C., One of the displays had this curious room that made use of very large and creepy-looking bugs pinned to the wall and elaborately, even artistically, displayed for your viewing pleasure. Uh, My four-year-old daughter, Elena, was at the same time intrigued and repulsed, in love with the idea and utterly afraid of it. 
And when she had the courage to look more closely, we were able to talk through the different beetles that were up to two inches big and these large, leafy-looking creatures that normally would be hidden away in a tree of a jungle. And yet here they were right before her very eyes. And she noted that, look, Daddy, we can see those little bugs because normally they would be camouflaged, she articulated carefully. Some word she learned, I don't know where, expressing how the leafy bug would not be visible when in his normal leafy environment. In this part of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is noting to us that too many of us Even those who live as followers of Jesus live like a leaf bug blending in with his or her surrounding environment. That, in fact, of course, the analogy breaks down, dear buggy congregation, that you ought to be something that stands out in the world because of a special kind of righteousness, a higher standard of love, a more otherworldly sort of justice, a different way of being a human being. Because that's what the kingdom of God introduces into our world, into our neighborhood, into your lives. Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, of the most religious person, of the religious status quo. And here he explains through many different examples what exactly he means. And his first topic relates to the matter of anger, of murder. Do you, dear friends, relate to anger in a way that sets you apart from the watching world, your friends and colleagues and neighbors, or friends, are you camouflaged? Does your manner of relating to anger and frustration, irritation, and hatred basically look the same as everybody else? Anger. Jesus tells us here a little bit about this topic, too often gone unexplored. He's referring to the sixth of the Ten Commandments, which prohibits murder. You say, I thought we were talking about anger. What's the deal with murder? Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments, but he's doing more than that. See, in verse 21, Jesus starts by saying, you have heard that it was said, and that's a signal that Jesus is about to correct the popular thinking of his day in the religious community. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, verse 21. There's nothing inaccurate about that statement. What he's challenging is the habit of keeping things only on the surface of our lives, restricting that commandment, you shall not murder, to the act of homicide, literally, alone. You see, Jesus never, never lets you take the Bible and only think that it applies to somebody else. You see, too many people read this and think they're off the hook, including me. But here's what Jesus is saying. Okay, you haven't killed them with your hands, but how often have you killed them in your hearts? With your thoughts, 
your motives, your words. You shall not murder, verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anger, Jesus tells us, is murder in the heart. As one commentator explains, the root of murder is anger, and anger is murderous in principle. The commandment not only forbids the outward act, but also every thought and word that seeks to destroy a man's life. Of course, not all anger is evil, not in itself. In fact, anger is an appropriate response to evil. God himself is wrathful against evil. Psalm 711 tells us straight up, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation against evil every day. The 16th century theologian Martin Luther called this holy kind of anger an anger of love. It's because God cares. It's because God loves that he burns in such a fashion as you and I do when we love. But Jesus is talking, though, about unrighteous anger, sinful anger, what Luther might have described as the anger of pride, the anger of hatred, the anger of revenge. Jesus isn't saying that They're the same in every way as if hating someone is the moral equivalent to shooting them. It's not quite what he's saying. He's saying your hatred, your anger makes you no less guilty before God than if you had committed cold blood murder. Someone says, whoa, whoa. Anger, murder, that that just sounds extreme. I don't buy it. But let's keep listening to how Jesus then illustrates the real evil of anger when he talks about our angry words. Did you see the example that he gives? In the second half of verse 22, he says, Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Raka, what does that mean? That was an old Aramaic word, the standard language that the Jewish community spoke in Jesus' day, an old Aramaic word that basically meant, you idiot, imbecile. It was a word of insult. Jesus also warns against calling our brother or sister fool. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Notice it. He, he, he didn't pick the most vulgar word. He didn't pick something from the catalog of four-letter words. If he did, it might have been too easy for outwardly moral people to say, hey, I don't cuss or swear. This must not apply to me. Again, he's trying to get beneath the surface. No, he picks a word that everyone uses. Even thinking it's innocent and undamaging. And he says, do you know what you are saying? Do you know the heart from which those words are flowing? See, raka was a word that literally meant empty. Nothing. 
Jesus is pointing out words that communicate to people, you're nothing. You're a nobody, loser, in so many words. Words that strip people of their dignity. Words that perform aggravated assault on their image-bearing humanity. Angry words. And in fact, they can be just about any kind of words. Bible scholar John Stott had this insight to offer. Anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Our thoughts, looks, and words all indicate that as we sometimes dare to say, we wish he were dead. This is what Jesus is talking about. Lying deep, even if inarticulated, unspoken, in our hearts. Pixar, the movie company, a couple years ago put out the hit movie, Up. Some of you may have seen it. One of the most beloved characters in this great animation was the lovable and laughable golden retriever, Doug. The special thing about Doug was that he wore a, a special collar around his neck that his master had created that translated all of his canine thoughts into spoken English. And so when Doug first meets the main characters, Carl and Russell, you may remember, uh, with tail wagging and tongue hanging out, he jumps up to them and we hear him in plain spoken human English, we hear him say, my name is Doug and I have just met you and I love you. Squirrel! His every inarticulated Doggy thought. And when he sees a tennis ball, he shouts out, Ball! Oh, oh, boy, oh, boy, ball! And as he's walking along and sniffing on the ground again, because of this dog collar translator, we hear him saying out loud, Find the bird, find the bird, find the bird. What would it be like to hear the inner thoughts of a dog? What would it be like to hear the inner thoughts of me? Of you? You see, Jesus is telling us that if we were to put Doug's dog collar on, translating our every thought and motive and desire, you would hear these words a lot. I wish you were dead. I wish you were gone. I wish you could, I could off you. I wish you would get out of my life and get out of the way. You see, God alone has the authority to give life and to take life. The problem with anger, the problem with killing someone in your heart, even with angry words, is that you are playing God. Have you thought of it that way? That you have decided whose life matters and whose doesn't. Raka. Nothing. A nobody. A somebody. The punishment it earns is nothing less, Jesus tells us, than the divine judgment of hell. He points us to the severity of this sin of anger because he knows we we just don't see it. We don't see the trail of carcasses that we daily leave 
behind us. And so Jesus is telling us how serious this is in his sight. So then what shall we do? What shall we do? How do we deal with the anger, the murder in our hearts? A couple of things. Number one, look. Look. Would you dare to take a peek into your heart and actually identify anger in your life? You know, this starts with accepting Jesus' redefinition of murder and anger, doesn't it? It actually starts with taking Jesus at his word that we don't normally get it. Ed Welch, a counselor who has written and taught on this topic of anger very helpfully, says that what we need to do is, is stretch and enlarge the category of anger so that it starts to include you which we normally don't do. Usually we sort of carve it around ourselves so that anger is a problem for everybody else but you, but me. Most of us, like the religious traditions of Jesus' day, tend to define murder and anger in, in such a way that it always applies to others. But here Ed Welch says, I know a man who doesn't think he is angry even though every hour or so he threatens to rip off someone's head. It's because his narrow definition of anger is this. An angry person actually rips off someone's head. <laughs> so until I actually do that, I'm not angry. He is. You are. I'm just almost angry. Man, my heart. Is it yours? Of course, there are obvious expressions of anger, chronic anger, the person that's constantly resentful or fuming at other people. There are other forms of volatile anger, those of us who get very explosive and intense with a bad temper. And even if you apologize and even if you're forgiven, do you understand oftentimes the damage is done in the diminishment of a person's being a bearer of God's image, the glory that they possess. Sometimes it's out of frustration and irritation. Oftentimes our anger is expressed through social media slander. We accept it, though. It's just part of the culture, part of life today, especially in Washington, D.C., too often in the workplace or in the public square, character assassination, character assassination. But there are also less obvious forms of anger, nonverbal anger. There's that glare, daggers in your eyes, killing them softly. Maybe you're always muttering under your breath, God, what a jerk. You don't say it out loud. It's not words that are exchanged, but it's words in your heart. Maybe it's a critical attitude that you have towards someone. And you don't think it's a big deal, but look at it. It's anger because you're constantly dismantling that person, tearing them apart. There's, of course, avoidant anger because some of us are just afraid to express any form of anger. Maybe it's because of the sort of family that you grew up in, not knowing how to handle strong emotions. So you just keep it all wrapped up, keep your resentment bottled up until one day, one day, who knows? Or there's passive-aggressive anger. Sometimes we make this an art form. 
you know, ways that we express our anger in non-direct ways like sarcasm or, or avoidance or even just keeping a distance from people. Maybe the person that you're avoiding today is actually a person that you're deeply seething towards, Cold War style in the heart. Friends, whatever form you might start to detect anger in your lives, in your heart, will you dare look? Will you look and have you in the last six months seen forms of anger? Have you confessed your sin of anger to both God and even to an anger injured person? Number one, look. Number two, as you're looking, ask. Look and ask. What do I mean? Jesus, remember, is pointing out our blindness. He's pointing out all the ways in which we skirt this issue of anger and the murder of our hearts. We need other people's help. Part of our blindness is owing to the fact that we're, we always use anger as a defense mechanism. Our pride is crossed sometimes, and we feel exposed or insecure, and so we retaliate, but we actually believe we're the one that was wronged. Are, are, you, are you ever wrong? Again, Ed Welch makes this great insight. Are you ever wrong because angry people, against all the odds, are nearly always right in their minds. Angry people are almost always right in their minds, always feeling wronged themselves. We are really good at justifying our anger. We see this even in the political discourse of our nation today, where it seems to be a blanket excuse for everything to say anything or do anything because the people are angry. As if that gives you license to be or do anything, even if it's for a greater good like the good of the nation. Jesus is warning us like this because we do think that my anger is justified. When in fact it's not, not as much as I like to think that it is. Jesus is warning us because 99% of our anger is sinful. I said earlier that there is such a thing as righteous and holy indignation against sin and evil in the world, but you have to understand almost always that holy kind of anger is only about 1% of what we actually experience and feel. So stop excusing all of your pissiness as just being of God and of God's word. That indignation that comes from God almost always, dear friends, is because of what was done to another person, not what was done to me. Will you then ask your spouse or your roommate or your close friend if they have seen in you frustration or anger? Will you dare to ask those around you? And this is where it's really important that you're doing this with people that are local around you. So I'm not talking about the old friend that you had from eight years ago that you can pick up the phone with and call. Maybe that could help. But what you need is a person that sees you day to day, that will see you in the next 20 minutes, that will see the patterns that are visibly in your life. Because again, a lot of the anger that we express is not just explicit, overt, clear, visible forms, but it's the invisible stuff. 
It's the nonverbal gestures and sort of vibes that people pick up on. Have you asked someone lately in the last six months, when have you seen me angry in the last few weeks? Do it. It just might change your anger life. Look and ask, and thirdly, hurry. Hurry. Do it quickly. This is actually Jesus' whole point in verses 23 to 26. He gives two scenarios of unresolved anger, one concerning a Christian brother and sister, the other concerning an adversary, one setting in the church and the other in the court. This is what he says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus' emphasis is on dealing with your anger quickly. Do not delay, you see, because if we can understand that the sin, if the sin of sinful anger is this serious, if it's this dangerous, as we've been arguing based on what Jesus is teaching, then we need to take action as quickly as possible. Are you nursing resentment? Have you left a broken relationship unresolved for too long? Jesus says, deal with it. Don't deny it. Don't deprioritize it. Don't delay. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson, I think, offers this great piece of wisdom. He says, most human relationships that are destroyed could have been preserved if there had been communication and action at the right time. It's not to oversimplify what sometimes is severe breakage and wrongdoing in some of our relationships. But I think in principle, he's right. We could save and salvage and flourish so many of our relationships, far more than we probably dare to put the energy into. We could salvage so much more than we really dare think. We're called to move quickly, but for the purpose of actually pursuing right relationships. See, the point is not just to say, don't be angry, but the point is to say, love. To extend love. You see, Jesus is telling us that how you treat your brother and sister in Christ is just as important as the songs of your heart that you were just singing several minutes ago. Leave your gift at the altar. Leave your worship. Don't offer up hypocritical or superficial engagement with God. Don't try to tell me you love me when you're failing to love your friend. Because as 1 John says, anyone that says, I love God and yet hates his brother is a liar. So Jesus says, take care of it. Love, heal, restore Your delight in God is in part expressed through your delight in other people who are made in God's image. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, go. Look 
Dear friends, look at your heart. Ask. Ask those around you. Hurry. Don't delay. Love. Don't just avoid anger. Restore relationships. And lastly, go. First go and be reconciled to Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus, there's so much about anger and murder that's wrapped around his whole life and his purpose for coming to this world. You see, Jesus was the one, the one who was speaking these very words was the one who, who, who never murdered. And we're not just talking about the narrow sense of that word. We're talking about even the fullest sense in which he is instructing us to avoid murder. Never used a violent use of his hands, never used a violent word against a person, never demeaning the dignity of a person around them, never a belittling thought. Jesus never murdered, but he was one out of love who let himself be murdered on the cross for murderous ones like you and me. Jesus is the perfect one who remembered that our relationship wasn't right and he left it all, left the gift at the altar, so to speak, the altar of heaven to go to us, to jump down and to be reconciled with us, sinners like us. So that while we are all still together on the way, right away, before we are handed over to the cosmic judge, Jesus settled matters quickly with his adversary. Yes, you and me, as Romans 5 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was never selfishly or resentfully angry with anyone, and yet he was subject to judgment. So obviously not for his own failure in the area of anger, but for our failures, daily failures, persistent failures, even unrepentant failures. The author of life was murdered at the hands of angry men for us, for our anger. Jesus was made answerable to the court of heaven as our substitute. Jesus suffered the fire of hell for us. Dear friends, do you know the good news of the gospel for angry hearts and angry people like you and me? It's that God's holy anger for our unholy anger was quenched at the cross so that you and I might not know his anger but might be brought into the joy of God. This is the promise of the grace of Jesus. And you see how this begins to change and melt even our hardened and hating hearts. To believe that Jesus paid the price that murderers like you and me deserve. To believe that you are forgiven begins to melt your heart and set you free. But then also to believe that Jesus obeyed the very thing which he's commanding, the very thing which is the surpassing righteousness of God's kingdom, that very thing that ought to feel to you to be impossible. My every thought, 
my every desire, my every motive, my rid of anger, of hostile, murderous, proud, self-centered, gunk. It's impossible. But when Jesus, by his supernatural power, begins to open up your life to him, the one who obeyed all this for you, so that through him you might begin to obey as well. With a melted heart, falling in love with the one who had every right to be angry with you, but is not and was not the one who now gives you his spirit to be more like him changing you, changing your anger into love. You are one, if you are in Jesus, whose life has been saved so that you might start to live like a lifesaver, a life giver, not a murderer in your words, in your thoughts, and in your actions. Do you know the mercy of Jesus for murderers? Do you know that even today, by the power of his spirit, that you can, through him, begin to abide by this command? Dear friends, have you seen it? Have you asked around concerning it? Would you look? Will you grow? Will you hurry? Will you love Will you go most of all to Jesus with your anger? He loves you. He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, come and help us to hear good news and hope that we wouldn't hide, but that we would draw near and be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.